You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, God, we pray that as we live in these uh, end times, that we would find our lives uh, hidden in your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, Jesus has just spent uh, a good bit of time in the temple with His disciples doing various and sundry things, a lot of teaching. And as they're leaving the temple, heading up the Mount of Olives there in Jerusalem, uh, one of them, uh, almost just speaking their thoughts aloud, sees the breathtaking image of the temple, certainly one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And they say, they begin to talk about how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. And Jesus' response to that is to say, truly I tell you this, I'm sorry, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now this comes as a great shock uh, to the disciples uh, because as far as they're concerned, if the temple comes down, uh, the very physical reality of their spiritual existence and even their national existence existence. Uh, They can be occupied by Rome, and as long as they have the temple, they still have an identity. They're still a people. And so for the temple to be destroyed must mean that it's the end of the world. Because that's the end of all things. That's the end uh, of them. And something that looks to have so much permanence to be destroyed is unthinkable. And so they asked Jesus, surely this means the end of the world. Tell us, what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And Jesus begins to talk about the end times, but not the end of the world. You see, biblically speaking, at least in the New Testament, that the end times are the time between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and His return which means that you and I live in the end times. Jesus even goes out of his way here to say, you're going to hear about wars, tumults, there'll be earthquakes, but that doesn't mean the end is here. This is just the reality of living in the end days. Jesus goes on to teach, well, what does it look like then for those who follow after him to live in these days. And so the words are not just pertinent to the disciples, they're pertinent to us who live in the end days as well. In the first instance, Jesus tells us that the righteous ju- about the righteous judgment of Christ. Secondly, the life of one who follows Jesus. What is this going to look like? What does it look like for the believer in the midst of all of this chaos? And thirdly, the care and perseverance of those who follow the Lord Jesus. Firstly, the righteous judgment of Christ. Now, as I said before, that this temple is the embodiment of everything that they hold dear, both spiritually and nationally speaking. The temple is the means by which they relate to God, how they're reconciled to God, how they know they have fellowship to God, how they know that God is with them, that they're His people. And so to lose the temple is to lose everything. Now back in chapter 19, 
Jesus enters the the temple by driving out those who sold, clearing the temple of the money changers, saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple had lost its true meaning. And Jesus is saying, you've gotten so far off. And isn't that the strange thing that while the disciples are there walking, admiring the temple, there before them, just feet away, is God himself. Not the thing, not just the temple that represented God, but God himself. He himself is the temple. He says in John's gospel, tear down this temple in three days, I'll raise it back up again. And they say, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. It took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But John reminds us, he speaks of his body. He's the temple, and he's come to set things to rights, and yet even the disciples are confused and have their eyes on this beautiful building. And when Jesus enters the temple in Luke 19, what is the response of the people? Do they fall on their face and say, we've taken our eyes off of God? We've lost our way. And not only that, God is now in our midst. The kingdom of God has come near. There he is. God incarnate, man divine, Lord of all. No, Luke tells us that the chief priest and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. There's always going to be destruction if we elevate man-made temples over Jesus. Now, I'm not talking necessarily of physical structures like the temple. I'm talking about those temples that our hearts build, those things that we actually may think bring us nearer to God. But But what they actually do is they keep Jesus at an arm's length. They keep him away from us. They keep our eyes away from him. There's a part of us that really does want something to stand between us and and Jesus. That to actually have to stare at him face to face, we'd much rather see God lost in a building far off that we can admire and say how lovely, rather than to have him stand right before us and speak his word to us. How do you relate to God? That's the question. What, What is it that you think brings you into fellowship with God? Well, if it's anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you can rest assured that it will be destroyed. Just as the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus's armies. Jesus himself says, if you want to know God, you have to know me. In the 14th chapter of John's gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Now, I know that this doesn't get a lot of airplay in certain circles, even within the life of the church. But what Jesus is saying is such amazing news that your hope for rescue is standing right in front of you. It's not far off. It's not behind curtains. It's not behind walls. I'm right here with my arms wide open, ready to rescue you. And yet others would be very content to build other temples. 
and don't like what Jesus is saying here. But I think of it in the same way as if you were to fall off of an ocean liner. And while you're there, sure to go under the waves, another passenger spies you and throws you one of those orange life rings and throws it to you. How many of us would look up on deck and yell, I want other options? Foolishness. No, we readily grab the rescue that has been provided for us and we get aboard ship and we say, praise God that there was a way to be rescued. Not that there's only one way, but that there was even a way as a great miracle that we come into fellowship with God through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just the means by which we come into fellowship with God. He's the ultimate object of our faith. So when we get to the book of Revelation and we see the new heavens and the new earth and you and I who put our trust in Christ will be there one day. We'll look around and there will be no temple for God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the temple. And in the meantime, we become temples of God's Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you and me who turn to him in faith. That's the power that lives within us. That's who we are as adopted children, sons and daughters of God. And we press on to Jesus. So Jesus goes on to say, okay, if I'm the temple, if I'm the object of your faith, this is what the life of one who follows me looks like. And he begins to talk about false teachers, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, terrors and great signs from heaven. And for people especially in 70 AD, that saw the temple being destroyed, the historian Josephus said that for the entire night while the temple burned, all you could hear was the shrieking of the Jewish people who saw the end of the temple as their end. And certainly in the Mediterranean world, seven years later, when Mount Vesuvius erupted and destroyed an entire city, Christians must have thought, this is it. And it's very easy when you talk about the end times to focus on the circumstances around us and try to read the tea leaves because we don't want to get into what Jesus says next. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and sisters and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus needs a lot of help with PR. I would much rather be distracted by the earthquakes and the wars and the tumults, but Jesus lays it square in their lap and says, this is what it looks like to follow me faithfully. It means you're going to be persecuted. And even persecuted by the people that you think love you and ought to even support you. He talks about parents and brothers and sisters, friends and family. And when he talks about the synagogue here, I don't think that he's talking simply about the synagogue in Jesus' day because the word for synagogue in Greek is often used interchangeably in the New Testament, especially in the epistle of St. James where the church is referred to in the Greek as the synagogue. And so he's even saying here is that the people that you think are on your side may actually be the ones who are persecuting you. That at best you'll be hated 
At worst, you'll be killed. Now, very few of us are actually going to get to a place of persecution where our life is on the line like our friend Bishop Zumbas from Nigeria who has been with us who every year loses members of his diocese to militant Islam. Or the missionaries that we support and often pray for, but we can't pray for them by name or even their location because it would put their life in jeopardy. But even in Birmingham, Alabama, to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk in his ways does mean persecution. It may mean social ostracization. It may mean that, you know, people saying to you, why can't you just, you know, I go to church too. Why can't you just go along with this? We've gotten over this long ago. This is just, this is just the way that the world is going and you really can't go up against the world. It cost us even something to follow the Lord Jesus. And he says, you're going to be brought up before people and you're going to be called to an account. But this is your opportunity to bear witness. What a crazy thing to say. Opportunity to bear witness. All this, I'm headed for the hills. I I don't want to deal with this persecution, even death. But Jesus says, no, this is your opportunity. Back in the 90s, there was a contemporary Christian song that had a line in it that asked, if loving God were a crime... Would you be an outlaw? If you were put on trial, accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, what does this evidence look like? Some of us may be thinking now, well, gosh, Andrew, if it's upright and moral behavior, it's not going to look so good. And there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, if you knew what was going on in my mind on a day-in, day-out basis, you would never come hear another sermon that I preach. And if I could see your innermost thoughts, I'd never preach another sermon to you. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's not just the do-gooders. The evidence of our faith in Jesus Christ is a life given over to Jesus It's a little bit like when Jesus in Luke chapter 8, someone comes to him and says, Jesus, you know, your mother and your brothers and sisters are here. And Jesus says, my mother and my sisters and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't love your family. In fact, being a Christian means you are given a heart to love them more deeply. It means that you find who you are in Jesus Christ. He takes the priority in your life. He is the object of your affection, and you are singularly focused. Even when you struggle, even when you fear, even when you want to run, even when you fail, you keep coming back to Jesus and fixing your eyes upon Him. I keep coming as the lectionary takes us through Luke's gospel back to John 6, where Jesus has given a very difficult teaching, and people begin to leave Jesus and no longer walk with him. So Jesus says to his disciples, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
A life given over to Jesus is a life that understands that we have no hope for rescue and no other help in this world other than him. Jesus, you're all that I have. And that's enough. That's enough. I have nowhere to turn other than to you. The Christian life is not an easy one, as Jesus here points out. But we find care and perseverance for God's saints in this world as we anticipate the next, which is our third and final point. Jesus says, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, how can Jesus say that no hair on our head will perish after he's just said some of you will die? Well, Jesus tells us elsewhere in Luke's gospel earlier on in chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of far more value than many sparrows. No matter your circumstance... When your life is in the Lord Jesus Christ, His love for you is eternal. As you stand trial, He is with you. He goes before you as a great warrior and protector. And we often fail to see that. We think that we're all alone in our lives, and as we go off to do battle, we have to put on Saul's armor, and that just makes us look ridiculous. But actually, no matter where we are in life, in our living and in our dying, God is there. And that's the biblical witness time and time again. When Nebuchadnezzar sentences Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the fiery furnace, he has the people who run the furnace heat it seven times hotter than it normally would be heated. So much so that those men die. The three are bound and thrown into the furnace. But when they gaze in, they see four men unbound, And this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Do you know that when you're in the fiery furnace, God is there too? And that there are times in your life where by his providence, you are going to have the hairs on your head which are numbered by him singed. But they will not overwhelm you. Because God is there. But so too, there are those of us who are called upon to give up our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ, as in the case of the first martyr Stephen in Acts chapter 7. That as he lay there about to die, Stephen says, by the full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Even in his death, there is Jesus. And you notice that he's standing in the creed and elsewhere in the Bible we talk about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God, but he sees his son, he sees his daughter, and he gets up and makes way to them. You're mine. And if you think that I'm just sitting around and letting these things happen to you, you're wrong. 
I'm in the furnace with you. And I stand with you even when you die for my name's sake. He's there in our living and he's there in our dying. And this is what allows us to persevere. It is God living and working in you that gives you the endurance. He sustains, he strengthens, he stands. That is the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ this day for those of us who live in the end times, that he's a righteous judge. He's in the business of destroying temples, those idols of our hearts that take his rightful place. And that the life of one who is a Christian is not an easy one, but there's no other life worth living than a life in Jesus. And that even in the midst of this persecution of God's great care and perseverance, for his saints, whom he died to save. Let us pray. Oh God, we pray that these words would become true in our hearts, that you would give us courage, not in our own strength, but that our lives would be found in you. And in all things, Lord Jesus, that we would run to you and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.